You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, your number one source for everything hunting, shooting, fishing, and a little bit of politics. Sit back and relax as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today. You'll learn valuable tips and tricks that you can use on your next trip into the field to make you a more successful hunter, shooter, and fisherman. Here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is episode 12, Shooter's Party founder, John Tingle. Uh, this was a great podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to John. He had a hell of a lot to say, which was, you know, you, honestly, we as shooters, we couldn't have had a better person uh, represent us uh, in Parliament, especially throughout the 1996 era. Uh, you'll hear John talk about that. So let's get into actually who John Tingle is. John Tingle is a journalist who worked in radio and television for over 46 years and was in the New South Wales Parliament for 11 years after that. His radio career started at 2QN Daniloquin in December of 1949. He joined the ABC News Service in 1951 where he stayed for 18 years. He moved to commercial radio in 1969. He became a current affairs broadcaster, variously representing prominent talk programs on a daily basis such as 2UE, 2UW, 2SM, 2GB and 2CH in Sydney. During his radio years, he also hosted regular TV programs on Channel 9 and Channel 7 in Sydney. He started the Shooters Party in May of 1992 and was elected to the Legislative Council, the Upper House in New South Wales Parliament, in March 1995 and resigned after being diagnosed with prostate cancer in May 2006. During his 11 years as a crossbench member of the Parliament, he had seven significant bills passed and became the longest serving member of the Parliamentary Stay Safe Committee. He was also a member of the Minister Ministerial Advisory Council on Shooting Clubs for over 10 years. Uh, before we get into my interview with John Tingle, don't forget guys, we are on Facebook. Jump on our Facebook page, we've got people chatting about everything firearms, politics, that's where to go to get a lot of the information uh, about upcoming guests. Uh, also to Twitter, AH Podcast, uh, you can uh, like us on Twitter, that'd be great. Uh, also too, you can email us, I'm still a bit behind on emails, but I'm endeavouring to get back to everyone as soon as I can. Uh, but you can email me at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also, too, uh, I've launched my new website. You can check it out at aussieferralcontrol.com.au. That's aussieferralcontrol.com.au. That's where I'm going to do most of my blogging. It's my business site. Uh, you can check out some photos. You can check out my blog posts, uh, but it is mainly for my business. Also, too, don't forget you can go on aussieusedguns.com.au and uh, list up all your selling and firearms needs, or if you're looking at buying, purchasing something secondhand, uh, it's free to list any secondhand rifles. And you can link up with buyers and sellers. I'm going to be going hunting next week, uh, goat hunting, so uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. Hopefully, I've got some uh, photos to post up uh, probably Tuesday or Wednesday next week. So if you want to see some hunting photos, go on the Facebook page, like us there at the Australian Hunting Podcast. Um, so yeah, look at having fun. So I guess without further ado, let's get into my interview with Shooters Party founder, John Tingle. <laughs> I'm Bob Catter from the Australian Party. We are talking to the Australian Hunting Podcast. God bless them all. All right, John Tingle, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time to talk to me today. 
Thanks for having me on, Jason. Uh, absolutely. All right. Can you tell us, I guess, for listeners that, you know, there, there might be some listeners out there that don't know who you are, can you give us just a bit of a uh, personal rundown of your personal uh, history, especially uh, your role uh, within the parliament and the inception of the Shooters Party? Well, yeah, I was in the media for 47 years on radio and television in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And then when I got out of that, I was elected to Parliament. I started the Shooters Party in May 1992. I was elected in uh, March 1995 for the usual eight-year term. I was re-elected in 2003. Uh, we started the Shooters Party because it was in May when the then uh, Griner government was planned to bring in laws which were going to restrict the use of semi-automatic uh, firearms or self-loading firearms. And I had lunch with Ted Pickering, the police minister, and I said, Ted, if you do that, the shooters will go political and they'll wipe you out. And what he said to me was, oh, yeah, that's all very well. He said, shooters are too apathetic. And he said, they'll never get off their backsides and do that. Mind you, he said, there are enough of them. If they ever did get together, they'd carry all before them. So I thought about that. And after lunch, I went down just as a joke and uh, thought to register the name, the shooters party, first one that came into my head, so I could ring Ted up the next day and say, I told you that it happened. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the Sydney Daily Telegraph got wind of it and ran the story on their front page the next morning, and within a week we had a thousand members. Oh wow! <laughs> well, I've never heard. Any, I've never knew exactly that's how it came about. But uh, oh, wow, interesting. So I guess um, I guess that goes into my next question. Obviously, how did it form? And I guess was was that the motivation to do so? What was that motivation to start it up? Well, the motivation in the beginning was simply to show the government that if they did this, shooters would uh, shooters would go political. And I didn't actually intend to start a party, but so many people wrote and joined just because the box number was put in the paper, not by me, but by the paper, that I thought, well, we've got something going here, we might as well start it. And it was a tremendous struggle. We had a half a dozen volunteers working at my place for months trying to keep up with the flow of members. And at one stage, it hit the 25,000 mark, although a lot of them dropped off later. And uh, it, it started simply to demonstrate that shooters are not inert, that they are not necessarily non-political they don't want to be political but sometimes if politics are forced on you you can only fight them with politics and that's what we did what happened was we set up the um, party ticket then one person pulled out and it was a reshuffle and actually without telling me they put me on the top of the ticket and to my horror i was elected and i say to my horror because at 63 starting an eight-year parliamentary term is a pretty heavy thing and while i had been a political journalist since 1952 and knew a bit about politics i knew that i was going to be in for a very rough uh, road to hoe which i was just the one person representing in Parliament, uh, a sport which is not particularly popular with the whole population, and working against a lot of people who are very anti-gun. That we got there and we did it. Absolutely. I mean, did you think it would ever turn out, or like just for, uh, for what it is today? I mean, even when you started it, did you ever have? Uh, did you ever think it would take off like it has, and, and what it's turned into today? Well, I hoped it would, Jason. But the problem was that in the beginning, of course, it didn't because some of the major shooting organisations set their face very much against me. They felt that they'd be better off supporting the National Party before the 1995 election. We went out to um, Anzac Range at Malabar and found it plastered with quite abusive uh, notes saying Tingle's only trying to feather his own nest and that this party will never go anywhere, stay with the parties that are already in government. And the point about that was, of course, I wasn't feathering my own nest. I was taking something like a 60% cut in income by moving from a fairly lucrative media career into politics. But also, I mean, I knew that we had an uphill battle, not just with the anti-gunners, but with the whole shooting movement, which is very conservative, doesn't feel it should get involved in politics if it can help it, and was a bit nervous about the fact that we might be seen by one side of politics as supporting the other, and therefore we might lose the support of that side. It was a very messy business for a while, but... 
once I got into Parliament and things began to happen, it very slowly began to change, and I stress the word slowly. Yeah, I mean, in saying that, when you first get in, obviously you never thought the Shooters Party would sort of take off as it did initially, as as you said before. But you know, obviously getting in there and it, and it blowing up so quickly. I mean, were you ever worried, like you know, well, you know, people might think, oh, you know, what's this Shooters Party? Who's this John Tingle? Yeah, he's going to be a fly by nighter. Or did you ever think anything like that? Or oh, all the time. And I not only thought it, but the point about it was that uh, it was forced upon me. There was a very strange fellow in Queensland, whose name I won't mention, who used to publish a very weird newspaper, and he got hold of every press release I put out and tried to twist it round, print it in the paper with rude words written on it. This fellow was supposed to be very pro-gun, but of course he wasn't. And a number, number of organisations like that called me out as being a phony or an opportunist or whatever it was. And probably if Port Arthur hadn't happened, we might have fizzled by the time of the next election. But of course that really put the... I suppose the, the frighters into the shooting movement and at that particular point we were at least able to rally a bit of support behind us. It still meant that the bill got through our parliament. Mine was the only voice in the entire parliament raised against it. In fact, the opposition leader at the time, Peter Collins, he told me that mine would be the only voice raised in parliament against the bill and it was. The other government and the opposition both combined to bring this through and as one oddity in the upper house where I was, as each particular section of the bill was debated, and I moved something like 115 amendments, none of which succeeded, a member of the opposition would get up, often a member of the National Party, and say, we think the member there has a very good amendment and the government should support it, but we won't. And then they voted against it. Yeah, I can imagine you had a tough time throughout that period. I can imagine it would have been, you know, people being at you, media, I mean... In the four days after Port Arthur, my wife and I had, I think, three meals and probably about four or five hours sleep and finally, on the Wednesday night, the Port Arthur happened on a Sunday, of course, on the Wednesday night, and Parliament was sitting. When I went up for dinner at 6 o'clock, I went blind. I didn't know what was going on, but I was hurtled into Sydney Hospital next door, and they discovered that I had a tremendous drop in blood sugar. And as soon as they laid me down, it started getting better again, but they were full of dust. Sent me home to sleep, which I did. My wife took me home, and I crashed out. And the next morning, the ABC's AM program started saying that I was hiding because they were trying to get an interview with me, and my wife finally woke me up a bit before eight and said, you're going to have to talk to these people, so I did, and explained that I never hide, but that I was so heavily doped that when I came out of Sydney Hospital that I distantly passed out. It was a very stressful time, Jason, and one that I wouldn't want to relive. Some questions later, we'll get into the, the, the laws and such, but uh, what, what were some of the uh, positive changes uh, made during uh, your, you know, your, your tenure with the Shooters Party? Well, um, I mean, my tenure with the Shooters Party still continues, even though I'm not in Parliament anymore, of course. Well, I mean, we, we got seven bills through. It was very difficult to get any kind of bill through that amended the Firearms Act. But what I tried to do was bring in bills which showed that shooters were not what you might call blazing rednecks. And, I mean, the first thing I ever got through, actually, was the Victims of Homicide um, Family Impact Statement Act, which sounds very complicated, but what it basically said was that when somebody has been killed in a homicide and somebody's been convicted of it before the judge passes sentence, then the family of the victim may hand the judge a statement of how the death of that family member has affected their family. And that arose from a particularly vicious case out near Moree where a young man was quite cold-bloodedly shot by somebody who was supposed to be a friend of his and this young man's mother wrote to me and said, well, he was the last of our family. They have murdered my son. Does it occur to anyone? They've also killed all of us. And uh, that bill was very widely received. Then we had the Home Invasion Act, the Workers' Protection Act, Home Invasion Act, various things, including the Game Bill or the Game and Fer Game Bill of uh, Game and Feral Animal Control Bill. 
I got seven bills up in all, and, and that, I think, was probably a record at that time for any crossbench member of parliament. Wow. So, say out of those, what would you say your most memorable achievement to date was with the uh, Shooters and, uh, or now, now Shooters and Fishers Party? Well, the important one was the Game Council bill, of course, because we wanted a Game Council. I uh, proposal for that to Pam Allen, the then Environment Minister, about six months after I got into Parliament. And sometime later, I had a phone call to ring Bob Carr, who was then Premier, who I'd known for years as a fellow journalist. And I was a bit annoyed with him about something at the time, so I didn't bother ringing him for a few days. And when I did, oh, he said, Pam came to me this great idea of setting up a game council in New South Wales. He said, that'd be great. It could protect feral, uh, native animals in national parks. And I said, what sort of things in national parks, Bob? And he said, oh, you know, the little ground-dwelling mammals and so on. So I said, OK, that's a good idea. And from there on, I let him think it was Pam's idea. From there on, we worked on it. We worked on it. Robert Brown, who succeeded me in Parliament, was the main worker because he understood it. He spent untold hours in my office at night into the small hours when Parliament was sitting with representatives of the Premier's Department, the primary industries, the whole lot, working on the details of the bill. And the bureaucrats wanted to make the Game Council an advisory body, which we wouldn't accept. We wanted it to be a statutory authority, meaning it's set up by Act of Parliament, can only be dissolved by Act of Parliament. It took us the best, well, eight, nine, ten years virtually to get to the stage where it went into Parliament. And when it did go in, it was introduced by the government at 20 past four in the afternoon, and we debated it till 6.30 the next morning. And we got it through, despite a huge number of amendments from the Greens, which were all defeated, thank goodness, and it got up and it ran. And that's made, it, that's made a significant difference to hunting in New South Wales, I reckon. Oh, absolutely. I'm a member of the Game Council myself. So um, who would you say, I mean, just sort of quickly, who, who would you say was the you know, easiest uh, people to work with and the hardest, say, throughout you know, your period, obviously, in Parliament? You know, like obviously, I mean, Prime Ministers, State Leaders. Who was easy to get along with and who was very difficult in trying to block everything that we, uh, you'd put forward? Well, the Greens, of course, tried to block everything we put forward, but let me amend that to an extent by saying that not so much Ian Cohen, who was the original Green in Parliament, who got in the same day I did, and Ian and I became actually very good friends, and we still are. He was a genuine environmentalist, Lee Rhiannon and a couple of others after her, and I always felt of those people that they were not so much environmentalists as political opportunists coming from the extreme left of the political spectrum, and Lee objected to everything I did didn't matter too much. I didn't mind her all that much because she never won, but she tried and she put every obstacle she possibly could in my way. In fact, as an example, when we were debating the Game Council bill, around about two o'clock in the morning, she moved an amendment to the bill to state that no member of parliament, past or present, could ever be a member on the Game Council and spun round dramatically uh, from where she was speaking and pointed at me and said, and that means you. And I just laughed. The last thing I wanted at two o'clock in the morning was to even contemplate going onto the Game Council and doing it. I just wanted it done. But the people who are very easy to get on with, some of them, particularly the man who was Primary Industries Minister and all the rest of it, Ian MacDonald, was a great friend and a great supporter and supported a lot of the things we did, even sometimes at the risk of clashing with his own party. Tony Kelly, who was the leader of the Upper House, was a shooter. But, of course, they all had to toe the party line, but they were very supportive and they were easy to negotiate with. And that was, that's the thing that counts in Parliament. Exactly. So uh, I guess we said that we're talking about, you know, you're still uh, with the Shooters Party, it's not in Parliament. So what's your, what's your current involvement now with the uh, Shooters and Fishers Party? Well, I'm still the vice chairman of it, and I still have a, a big say in what the party does. I wrote the Constitution. I have a great deal to do with developing the policies and so on, and we have telephone conferences and our annual state conference, and... Uh, I'm in constant touch with uh, Dave Cook, who's the current chairman, and with Robert Brown and Robert Borsak in Parliament. 
because I do have a lot of political and journalistic experience. I mean, I'm a journalist, I'm not a politician, and uh, I'm just involved in it from day to day. I also uh, moderate the website. Yeah, I keep the interest up because it's something I created and it's still going, what, uh, nearly 20 years later, which is a pretty good feeling when you start something to still have it going for that length of time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I guess on behalf of all shooters, fishers and everything, yeah, thanks for doing that. I mean, you know, there, there wasn't a voice, uh, you know, prior, I guess, to, you know, obviously the issues in 1996, etc. And I know a lot of people have, you know, voted for you guys and, and there's been some good things that have come out, especially in the fight after, you know, post-1996. But we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that in a little bit later. Well, Jason, what's not often recognised is this is the only time in the world anybody has been elected to any parliament anywhere on the basis of the platform of shooters' rights. It's never happened anywhere else, and perhaps I can see it's not going to. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, after you've retired now from the, the, the political arena, what, what do you get up to these days? Are you just sort of hunting and shooting? What do you, what do you... Oh, I haven't been, doing, haven't been doing much hunting lately because I've had a, a, a problem with my shoulder, but I'm the vice chairman of the Hastings Regional Shooting Complex in Port Macquarie, which is probably the best shooting complex in the state. In fact, it is the model for the state government. I'm the vice chairman of the Hastings Valley Hunting Club, which is a very big club, we in Port Macquarie have an enormous problem with feral deer. Some years ago, people started deer farms up in the mountains to the west of Port Macquarie. When they didn't succeed, they just apparently cut the fences or the deer got out and started to proliferate. In fact, somebody said they'd breed like rabbits. And in Port Macquarie, you could come around the corner in the middle of town at 9 o'clock at night and find yourself about to run into a huge deer, a stag or a doe, whatever it was. And um, it became so serious that every week there were two car smashes in Port Macquarie Average uh, cost damage about $2,500 each. So without us even having to start it, the council, the Port Macquarie Hastings Council and the National Parks and Wildlife Service, would you believe, and the police got together and formed the Deer Management Committee of which we were invited to take part. And they organised a culling program, which members of this club do. Um, and they actually um, not only go out and cull deer, which uh, caused so much havoc in the town, but the police are always notified of when they're going to, out on a night shoot. So they hear shots. The police say, yes, that's deer culling. The deer were so bad that they actually cleaned up all the floral tributes at the cemetery. They damaged the, um, the, the, the vines and the flowers that are planted in some of the local wineries. Uh, the crashes with cars were a bad problem. They got into local gardens. They were just a menace. But we have cut them back very, very heavily to the stage now where... I think every freezer in Port Macquarie is full of venison and um, we're still culling them. But it was interesting that the National Parks and Wildlife Service, which has been against hunting in national parks, actually was one of the prime movers in having this culling program started. Yeah, well, looks like I'm uh, upping and moving to Port Macquarie next week then, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you've got to get in the queue, mate. <laughs> All right, so um, I guess that goes into our uh, next question. I guess we're talking about politics and gun laws before. What's your opinion on the current state of gun laws are within Australia? Well, they're nonsense. They're, they're supposed to be national uniform gun laws or uniform national gun laws. They're neither national nor uniform. In fact, the use of guns in crime has increased since the, these laws came into place. We saw figures the other day showing that the number of guns that were confiscated, and I use that word quite deliberately in the original buyback, have been more than replaced by the number of guns imported into Australia last year alone. And, of course, um, they had no effect other than setting up a huge bureaucracy in the registry, having to keep registrations of these firearms. And, Jason, I think it's interesting to notice that when this was coming in, Rebecca Peters, who was one of the prime architects of it, 
said the purpose of having registration is so that the police will know where the guns are. Now, simple logic tells you that all registration tells you is where the guns were at the time they were registered. For instance, if a policeman is called to an address at 22 Smith Street, Smithville, and calls in on the police radio, he's told there are no firearms registered at that address. That doesn't for a minute tell him that someone hasn't taken a firearm to that address and is using it to kill or hurt somebody. So it's absolutely meaningless at that point of view, and it's meaningless because in the beginning it was such a mess getting the figures and the uh, statistics and the records right. It was an absolute mishmash. It's better now, but it serves no purpose whatever. Yeah, I mean, do you think, I mean, obviously those processes of like permits to acquire and registration, would that be something, do you think that's still a, a valid system? I know there's been a lot of talk lately of PTAs and, I mean, uh, registration of air rifles and such is a bit meaningless. Do you agree with that? or you to think to- a- Totally meaningless because it doesn't achieve anything. I mean, things are only meaningful if they accomplish something that wasn't there before. And as I said, all they've done is set up this huge registry, which is expensive to run, expensive to maintain, and prone to error all the time, not through any fault of the people running it, but just that's because of the way systems go. And the, the, the thing that I see about it is that having a PTA is all very well. We managed to change the law so that, in fact, you could get the second firearm of the same type without having the 28-day waiting period, but you've still got to wait for the thing to be processed by the registry. They do a very difficult job under very, very straightened circumstances. I think they're understaffed. I think they do their best but it's quite impossible to keep up with the monstrous thing that this registration thing has created. And the PTA is unnecessary. Once you've got a firearm license for various categories of firearm, you should be able to go and buy one of those firearms without any further questions. Well, I guess they'd probably say they need to make some money somehow, don't they, with their $30 uh, per, per permit to acquire, unless you're a primary producer. So I guess... Well, well it's, it's barely covering the cost of the administration of that. That's the whole point. And, and the thing is that the greater part of a license fee actually goes to the RTA for taking the photograph. That's often not known. The registry is just scraping by. They're not making a profit because it's a monstrously expensive thing to run with a staff which should be around about the 100 mark and usually isn't. And uh, it, it doesn't matter what they charge for license fees and things, it's not going to cover that cost. It'd be very interesting. I mean, I don't think it's ever come out. They're a little bit secretive about what you know, what sort of goes on, how much money is actually spent on the uh, firearms registry as a whole, you know, including like obviously staffing, uh, all the you know, the administration. It'd be very interesting to find that out. I'll, well, I, I did find it out once because I was on one of the um, committees which does the budget estimates, and I actually asked the Minister for Police at that time how much it cost, and he said, oh, we haven't got these figures taken out. They don't appear in the budget, but they, we got them taken out, and it proved quite clearly that the cost of licensing, particularly with the reduced number of licenses because so many people gave up, is not covering the cost of administering those licenses. And a lot more, and a lot more shooters are coming on board over the last couple yep. of years, five years. So it's yep. only, only going to blow out more. So what, I mean, what positive changes would you make for future generations in firearms laws? Uh, I take it back to about the 1976 Act. That's all we need. All we need, I think a license is not an unreasonable thing, so that somebody who has got a firearm has passed some kind of a reasonable test to show that they know what to do with it and are aware of safety requirements. The important thing is to get young people involved in it, and there's evidence already that that is happening. Up here in Port Macquarie for a couple of years now, we've had some schools which have as their sports day on a Thursday shooting and they come out to our complex and they are trained one-on-one by members of the hunting club and these kids are great the women incidentally the girls are much better than the boys i've got to say oh really <laughs> well grace and i sat there supervising one young girl of about 13 one day she was a left-hander and all we had was right-handed bolt rifles 22s 
And she said, what do I have to shoot at? So I said, that little circle in the middle of the square on the target. So with five shots, she shot the circle out completely. Just went round it, shot after shot after shot, and it fell out. I can't shoot like that. No, always good. I know the young ones, these, I mean, I'm 30 years old now, and I, can, I start to see these young kids that are coming up, and they're just, oh, geez, they're good, aren't they? Good at a very young age, too. So. Well, I'm 80 years old, and I've been shooting since I was 10, but I just watched this girl in amazement, bearing in mind that she was a left-hander, and you know how awkward it is for a left-hander to use a bolt action, but she took her shots carefully, and with five 22 caliber rounds, she punched that little circle about the size of a five-cent piece out completely from the target. I can't shoot like that. I never have been able to. She's Olympic material if she ever had. We had a girl here, who 14, uh, Sophie Henderson. She took up shooting. By 15, she was in Milan in the World um, Benchrest Championships. She went in four events and came back with a gold and a bronze. Excellent. Excellent news. Seems like, seems like a breeding ground up there for uh, good shooters. We're doing our best. <laughs> There's a lot of shooters in this part of the world, and this complex is absolutely amazing. We've had a few complaints about noise. We've fixed those. It looks like a bowling green. It's, it's, it's grass. The buildings are nice. We've got running water. We've got uh, you know, sewerage. World standard. Uh, mate, it sounds like it. Look, it looks like I definitely got to move up there now. I mean, I used to come up there for holidays as a kid, you know. For Come and have a look one day. You'll be surprised. Oh, I just might. I just might. So um, getting in the next one, I guess, how, do you see, how did you see the reaction uh, of the media, say, in the government over the Port Arthur shootings? Obviously, you were around... You know, during those laws change and the and the and the upheaval of those laws and the media involvement, what was that like during that time? And was it a bit, was it a bit was it? I mean, obviously it was a terrible thing. I mean, everyone can I'm sure everyone can agree with that. Um, but in regards to the laws of those situation, what do you think it was overboard? Do you think uh, it solved anything today in regards to you know criminal criminal homicide and those types of things? No, I never thought it would. I'm a journalist, as I said, and I worked in. Uh radio and television media for 47 years before I got out and uh, I was only a year or two out when this happened and I was absolutely ashamed of people in the media by the way they all climbed on the bandwagon and started carrying on without stopping to think that what they immediately set out doing was finding a scapegoat and the scapegoat was the licensed shooter they immediately set out demanding punishment for somebody who had done nothing which is the licensed shooter I mean I got abused I had death threats for six months my wife and I were followed everywhere by special branch people because they expected them to try to assassinate me. And that wasn't a very comfortable feeling, but I thought at the same time, I've never been to Port Arthur. I wasn't involved in this. I haven't encouraged it. I haven't done anything to make it more likely to happen. But they had to find somebody, so they attacked me. I was attacked on radio and when I did interviews like I'm doing with you now. How could I possibly justify people having guns? All that sort of stuff. And it was a hysteria largely fomented by John Howard, who I've known for many years and knew him long before he got into Parliament, being a populist prime minister, jumping on the bandwagon and saying, as he said, the only honest thing he said in that whole particular debate was when he came on national radio and television about 20 past six and said, I won't pretend for a moment that this will make the streets of that this will stop another massacre from happening, but it will make the streets of Australia safer. And that's nonsense. It didn't make them safer at all. It's made it worse. Sure, there's been a decline in massacres. There's been a decline in firearm suicide, but no change in the overall suicide rate. So what, what's been achieved? I know, and people think, this is the funny thing, John. I mean, I said this on a couple of interviews. I spoke to a few different people, and they say, you know, oh, you know, crime is down, all this sort of good stuff and everything, but uh, there's been no more massacres, which I can understand because the only reason there's been no more massacres and no more shootings of a large scale is because somebody 
it doesn't matter who it is, hasn't decided one day to go silly and stupid and start shooting people. That's the only reason. Will it happen again? Hey, let's hope not. Well, you're absolutely right in what you say because nobody can say it won't happen again. It hasn't happened since 1996, and that's a long time. But then again, we had those uh, those uh, the events at uh, in Melbourne at the university, the Tro, and that was described as a massacre. And it wasn't a massacre; it was a deliberate assassination, and and it, it was a, a not a, a massacre. It was a random shooting of people. The people who died in that were clearly deliberately targeted by the shooter, and as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't qualify as a massacre. Whether that makes any difference doesn't matter. People still died, and they died by gunfire. But the point about it is it doesn't prove anything about the firearms laws except that they didn't stop it happening. Yeah, maybe maybe then instead of you know, uh, you know blaming and, and making the licensed shooter responsible, perhaps perhaps you know the police and getting guns off the street and that you know that may be a start. So instead of you know as soon as something goes wrong, it's a licensed shooter. We've got to crack down on licensed shooters. It's just it's just honestly I've never heard anything so ridiculous and appalling. You know, and, and a lot of shooters uh, relay my sentiment in regards to those comments. So well, apart from anything else, this all this stuff about getting guns off the street i don't think guns were on the street before this happened the only guns that are usually on the street are those in the hands of criminals and you know what we've seen there is the development of a huge black market trade in firearms um i've been i warned about this for years about the number of firearms being smuggled into the country and nobody believed me for quite a long time but you know the rinko factory in um, china as you would know manufactures excellent copies of some very good firearms including glock pistols you can buy them there for about 300 bucks get them into Australia, sell them for about 3000 and they keep on talking about shipping containers and so on. Well, I, I, years ago when I was still on radio, before I even got into Parliament, I warned that a massive amounts of stuff were being smuggled into this country through the northern part of Australia where there are old wartime landing strips and salt pans where an aircraft can land or just ducking across from Papua New Guinea. It's only a 40-minute trip by boat. And, you know, it's worth the risk because if you make that sort of profit on them, obviously it's going to be a great thing to the black market and their main their main market is in the drug trade because friends of mine and the police told me a long time ago that the drug dealers have learned that being armed keeps you level with the other gang and they've also learned that once you fire a shot you get another one because that way the ballistically the bullet can't be traced back to something in your possession so there's a continuing demand to replenish the supply of firearms for the, the drug gangs for a start yeah, exactly. So I've got a bit of a contentious one here which has mixed results amongst shooters, but some people still in Australia see home defence as a genuine reason to own a firearm. Do you think it's a valid reason to defend one's home from intruders or when one's life's in danger? Absolutely. There's no question about it in my mind, whatever. If you're going to have a firearm, I can't think of a better reason for having it than that. I mean, there are some restrictions you've got to put on it. My home invasion bill, for instance, which some people still don't know about, which came through in 1998, says that if somebody breaks into your house and threatens you or attacks you, you can use any means available to you to deal with that person. And if you happen to wound them or kill them, you are given immunity against civil or criminal liability. And if the police do find some reason to charge you, when you go to court, the onus of proof is reversed. You don't have to prove anything that when you did whatever you did, whether it was hit him with a cricket bat or shoot him or stab him with a knife, that when you did that, you did not believe in your own mind, didn't really believe that that action was necessary. Now, I can't prove what was in your mind two seconds ago, Jason, so obviously it's impossible for the police to prove that. The only difficulty is that one of the, reasons, one of the means of self-defence unlikely to be available is a firearm. Now, that's idiotic. You can have it for every other purpose 
but not for what should be the most important purpose of the lot. Yeah, and I, I don't think people want, you know, like concealed carries out in public or anything like that. But no, I mean, a lot of people do. A lot of people want to go hunting with handguns, and I'm not too keen about that because I've done it. And I'm, I wasn't a bad pistol shot in my day, but I've always found that the, the pistol round is, in many cases, on big game, inadequate and pretty inaccurate. But, okay, I, I carried a, a pistol for quite some time because I had a lot of death threats when I was still in radio, and the police suggested I convert one of my club pistols to a 1A licence, as it was called, and I did. And I carried a Smith & Wesson Model 66357 Magnum in a, a waste holster for a long time. But it also occurred to me that if somebody put a bomb under the car, that wasn't going to help me very much. <laughs> no, no. I think a lot of people, a lot of, I hear a lot of uh, my listeners always talk about, you know, the pistol laws. And I, think, I don't think so much as getting out hunting, but some people see it more of as a security, especially like, you know, if they're out, let's say, in the field, you know, there's a mob of pigs, and let's say they, they obviously wouldn't be able to get the rifle off quick enough or not enough shots in a shotgun, for an example. They may have a, a at a last point of uh, safety, say, a, a, you know, a sidearm to be able to you know, protect themselves. Unless you've been a pistol shooter, as I was from 1979 until I had to give it up last year when I broke my shoulder, you'd know that accuracy with a pistol, particularly under pressure, is very, very hard to achieve. There are a few really cool people who can do it, but the chances of actually stopping a big pig with, say, a 38 calibre pistol is just almost nil. And, and you've also got to hit him in the right place. I've done it. I actually emptied a whole the cylinder of six rounds of three bucks my property one night. He just kept coming. He changed his mind at the last minute and ran away, but I hit him every time from a range of about, I suppose, I don't know, 15, 20 feet, and um, that was it. Yeah, so we're talking about the policy as the home invasion, and uh, can you tell the listeners I mean, how it came about? How did you actually want to draft up that, you know, that home invasion, the laws surrounding that? Well, I went into Parliament intending to do that because I knew of a case in Sydney where a person, a public in a, in a hotel, had gone to investigate a noise in the hotel at night and his wife had given him a shotgun to take with him in case of, this is quite a lot of years ago, of course. When he got into the bar, there were two people raiding the bar. The pub was closed and they were, one was on the counter, as I remember, and one was standing on the floor. And one of them threw a pinch bar at him and he took his ear off and the gun went off and one of them was killed and one of them was wounded. Now, he was charged. It took years to go through and by the time it was all over, he'd lost his job his hotel, his money, I think his marriage broke up. And to me, he was the victim in that, not the, not the aggressor. We had to put the law on the side of the good guys and tip the balance away from the bad guys because there was this idea among so many people in my days, particularly in my last 10 years on radio on 2GB in Sydney, people would ring up and say, yeah, but if someone breaks in and I hit them, I could be charged with assault. And to me, we had to change that balance. So that was why I worked on the Home Invasion Bill and brought it in so that the good guy is the person being attacked or threatened and the bad guy is somebody who's broken into his house or his workplace or whatever else with malintent. And uh, it was howled down a bit by the civil libertarians, but uh, there was a drop in home invasions for quite a long time after it came in. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, for years I've always thought that is phenomenal how you can be in your own home and you know, not you know, hurting anyone, doing your own thing with your family members, and then someone gets into your property, or as you said, the hotel. You know, obviously, you know, things obviously happened at that particular stage. Then he's you know brought through the ringer and lost everything. I mean, you know, like, and he's made to feel like 
You know, I mean that that's that, that's you know it's you know I don't know how people come back from that mentally. I mean, you know, like how you come back from you, know, you you've, you've lost everything and you were the person that was in the right, and also the, the the bad negative media people think might be thinking certain things about you. You can't be trusted. Like I mean, how does it happen? It's phenomenal, phenomenal, isn't it? Well, Jason, John Howard used to talk about not wanting to go down the American road with guns. That the, if we don't do what what I brought into place, we would go down the American road of litigation. And there are all sorts of famous cases, hundreds of them that I've seen. I mean, the burglar who broke into somebody's place and stole a, a, in America, stole um, a slab of beer and went out through the garage and then discovered he couldn't open the garage door because the remote wasn't working. When he tried to get back to the house, he found the door had locked behind him and he was there for 10 days with only the beer to drink. When the family came back, he sued them for imprisonment <laughs> and won. And he won. This is the whole point. In America, you can do that. I don't want it to happen in Australia. The good guys have got to have the law behind them and the bad guys have got to be hit much harder by the law than they are at the minute. Oh, it's astonishing. So, getting us following up on that, the home invasions. What was the what were the penalties before, um, uh, say the, the the home in, or the, the the bill came in? What was the what was it? Yeah, can you tell us what the laws were like before it happened? So, if let's say in that situation where you had that goal before, what what was the penalty if you did defend yourself against somebody? Well, the point about it was all we had was the common law, which gave you the general right to self defence, but didn't uh, didn't spell out the right of how you were supposed to use it. So in those days, I mean, if um, somebody broke into my house and uh, he was threatening me or my wife or my kids, and I, for instance, went for him either with my fist or something or hurt him or he fell over and cracked his head, I could be charged with assault. I could be made to pay compensation to him. The whole thing was just idiotic because I didn't have the right to defend myself in a manner which was using more force than this person was using on me. Now, if you've got to wait for him to have the first swing at you to see how forceful he's going to be, you might as well give up the, the show before it starts. In other words, you were not allowed to take any action until there was an actual physical assault on you. And that's ridiculous. I mean, somebody breaks into your house, they've got a knife, and they're waving it around. You're not going to really stop to think about what you're going to do. And, and if somebody fast asleep at 2 o'clock in the morning in a darkened bedroom and suddenly you find a bloke there you know, standing over you with a baseball bat, what are you supposed to do? Ask him, can you wait for a minute while you think whether or not the law allows you to, to defend yourself? Well, the common law was deficient in that, and uh, what we did was codify the common law and spell out exactly what people can do. And incidentally, that and the Workplace Occupants Protection Bill, which extended that to the workplace, and the workplace was defined as a hole in the ground, a tractor seat, a shop, an office, that was eventually all incorporated in the Crimes Amendment Self-Defence Act in 2002, which gave you those rights of self-defence anywhere at any time, not just in the house, not just in the workplace. And most people don't even know that bill exists, that act. Well, fantastic for getting that in, uh, John. I know some people e emailed me before I said I was going to interview you, and they said to say thanks and you know your your, your services on that and, and and getting that through was by far really really good. So, you know, I guess they're thanking you for that. They wanted me just to relay that to you. So, well, that's very nice, Jason. I just regarded it as a necessary extension and, and and clarification of the justice system, which is so defective in so many places. Absolutely. So why do you think the government scrutinises law-abiding citizens when majority of firearms-related crime is by criminals? I mean, criminals don't have licences, yeah. they don't submit PTAs, they don't conduct safe firearm safety training, nor do they adhere to a law or regulation. They, they only apply to law-abiding citizens. Well, law-abiding citizens, of course, are a soft target. The government knows where they are and who they are and what they've got, whereas they have no idea who the criminals are, where they are or what they've got. So they do the easy thing. They seem to be doing something about crime by saying that they're keeping an eye on shooters and licensed shooters and, uh, 
and containing what they do and uh, blissfully overlooking the fact that they're doing nothing about the bad guys. It's just a sham. Yeah, it really is. So I guess going back to the laws changing around 1996, obviously um, this is a pretty contentious issue. I know a lot of people are pretty sort of, you know, to put it frank, a bit pissed off with the government uh, around that time, around the hand-in and the buyback, losing, obviously, you know, pump-action shotguns, semi-automatic shotguns, obviously their uh, semi-automatic and rimfire, you know, their 22s. Um, would that, obviously, you know, a lot of people, you know, 16 years later, we still haven't seen a reintroduction of those items. Do you think there ever will be? And also, why during that period, example is, let's say, I can still go and buy a lever action, uh, you know, the little IAC 1887 lever action shotgun, which will hold, you know, six or seven shots, um, yet I can't have, you know, a, a pump action or a semi-automatic to go down to Melbourne and hunt ducks during the uh, duck season. The reason for that is quite simply that the government, in its wisdom and with the advice of all sorts of people who didn't know what they are talking about, decided that pump actions and self-loaders were the real problem. That, I mean, the fact that you can do as much damage accurate rifle as you could do with those, it just escaped them. And, and so they decided that what they would do would be clamp down on something to show that they were doing something about it. And the whole thing, as I said before, is a sham. It's to achieve nothing. As far as I'm concerned, I would like to see those things come back, but it's going to take a long time, if ever, before it does, because... The government doesn't understand and doesn't really care. Any government I'm talking about now doesn't understand and doesn't really care. They want to do the grand gesture, sweep the whole thing under the carpet and forget it's there. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, all these anti-gun lobbyists and the Greens and all that, they're always referring us to America, yet they never seem to mention England where you can still use semi-automatic shotguns. Or Canada or any of those places. No, of course they don't. Of course they don't. Look, what we've got is a system that doesn't work and it's getting less workable as time goes by. The pressure against it because of the increase in uh, the numbers of people taking up shooting as a sport, I would like to think that before I die, I see somebody suddenly see the light, a bit of common sense comes into legislation, and shooting is seen for the respectable sport it is. I mean, John Howard never minded hanging around uh, and we're winning gold medals at the Olympics, never mind being seen with a winner, but to get him near any other kind of a gun, he'd run a mile. It's, it's sheer political hypocrisy, Jason. Yeah, good. You Very, very well said then. So speaking of these Greens and these antis, what can people do, do you think, to rally against these you know, fear and hate campaigns from like, you know, the Greens and these anti-gun organisations? Well, well, that's the real problem in the whole shooting movement, and that is that shooters are lethargic and they are apathetic. We have had great trouble convincing more than about half of the shooting movement that they are under political pressure that they've had one of the most vile political acts ever uh, brought in against them in 1996, that they have been victimised, uh, that they have been singled out and, and demonised by legislation that doesn't work and they're serving no purpose because I think the whole shooter thing, and I've summed it up many times, and I said I've been a shooter for 70 years, it's summed up in the sort of thing where we'd go to, uh, say, a shooting club before an election and ask, could anybody give us a hand you know, with the election? And they'd look at you and say, oh, well... Yeah, mate, but I don't want to get involved in politics. And one quite large shooting club up on the mid-north coast got me to get them quite a lot of money to build a clubhouse. I got them $28,000 from the government to do it. And after they got the money and they built the clubhouse, I asked her to come up there one weekend to talk about the uh, handgun buyback that was coming in. And they said, oh, no, we've talked about that. We don't want to have anything to do with politics on this range. And I said, well, that's fine, fellas. You've just had $28,000 worth of political money, which you certainly didn't knock back. Uh, you're quite sure you don't want to have anything further to do with politics because if you don't, don't call me again. And the great thing, Jason, which I've reported many times, 
is that over the years when we've gone to clubs or gone to individual shooters and said, okay, there's an election on Saturday, we need people to hand out how to vote cards at polling stations. And the answer we've invariably got with a slight variation of the words is, yeah, mate, look, wouldn't mind helping you, but I go shooting on Saturdays. <laughs> I rest my case. I've got a listener question here from Ben, uh, and he goes into saying here, sometimes shooters, and it's just actually what you went into, sometimes shooters of different disciplines can be uh, their own worst enemies. He, you know, example, he says hunters, uh, target shooters, pistol shooters, clay target shooters, and instead of all standing together united, there seems to be an often bickering from different viewpoints. How hard was it to sort of um, you know, form and keep together the party to cover all the types of shooters um, and how best can we address this in the future? That was from Ben. Well, I, I'm not sure that we ever have got them all together, Jason, to be perfectly truthful. I had, as I said earlier in the piece, a lot of opposition, quite organised opposition from some of the shooting organisations and from some individual shooting clubs. And look, it's perfectly true. When the uh, long arm buyback came on, pistol shooters didn't care. When pistol shooters copped it a few years later, rifle and shotgun shooters didn't care. They have never understood that they are all shooters. It doesn't matter what particular firearm they use, they are all shooters. And until they understand that, and realize that united they will stand and divided they're being picked off one by one, it's not going to get any better. There is a problem of small empires being built up at the club level, at the association level. They don't want to have anything to do with anybody else. And from my point of view, that absolutely is, is um, well, it's constant in what you just said. Shooters, not of any particular type, shooters are their own worst enemies because they don't understand that other shooters are not their enemies and they don't understand that unless they get together and become united and put more people in Parliament, then eventually, if things keep going the way they are and we lose ground, they'll go. Uh, well said, well said, definitely. So um, why do you think John Howard failed in his attempt to form the National Firearms Legislation Reform back around that post-1996 well, he, he's, what he did, of course, was taken over the sovereign right of states because in the Constitution of Australia, there is no power given to the Commonwealth Government to legislate on firearms. That's all state stuff. That's why he had to get the state ministers down there in May and, um, and, and bully them all into accepting the firearm laws which he'd proposed, which were originally put up, I think, in 1981 and seemed to be too dangerous and too stupid to bring in. And uh, he insisted on it being... Uniform. Well, each state decided, oh, no, no, we, these are our laws, not Commonwealth laws. We've got to go with him to get funding, but we'll put our own variations into these. And so you have different requirements for licensing, for registration, for PTAs, for categories of firearm from state to state and territory to territory, and it just got worse as the years have gone on. So it's a mishmash. So we don't have national uniform laws because John Howard didn't understand that they would never work when the sovereign states insisted on doing it their way. Absolutely. So, no, again, very well said. Couldn't have said it better myself. What's your view on the, uh, obviously, you'd know that the Malabar rifle range is obviously being shut down. So what's yep. your view on that? And what's it, do you think, again, another political thing or what's the issue with the Malabar rifle range? Well, that's been going on for years. I mean, long before I got into Parliament, I remember talking to the New South Wales Rifle Association and saying that what I had heard was that the um, federal government wanted to close it down because it's federal land. And indeed, before Nick Greiner became Premier, in whatever year it was, 1980-something, I was on 2GB at the time, and there was a proposal to close the ranges down and sell the land for development, for uh, building. 
And Griner came on my radio program with me as opposition leader and said, well, look, it's ridiculous because it's built on a rubbish tip. You could never, it's not stable enough to build on. And he said, if the federal government does sell it and divide it, I, as Premier coming in, will deny them all utilities. They'll get no electricity, no water, no roads, no nothing. So it won't be able to function. But it was, it's always been there. Unfortunately, the Rifle Association spent a lot of money thinking they could win in a federal, in a court when you really can't fight the government. I mean, they've got the money and the resources and they can keep going till you run out of it. And if they'd used that money at that time, they probably could have bought themselves and owned an area of land within reach of Sydney where this thing could have been re-established. But they just wouldn't accept because they believed what was written on pieces of paper that this would never happen. They believed that they'd be given an alternate site. They believed that they would be given money to do it. And those were empty promises. There was no intention in any of those from either side of politics to do it. I took the late Roy Smith and another person to see Bob Carr Christmas 2004 because it was in his electorate. And he said, I'm sorry, when I went into Parliament, it was part of my policy that that land would be opened up for public use for parkland and, and walkways and things like that. And he said, it's not state-owned ground, so I can't do it. But if the Commonwealth ever handed it over, that's what we'd change it to. He said, there's nothing I can do about it. And the Commonwealth, of course, has fiddled around with it for a long time. I think that the latest thing about asbestos is just an excuse. I think that it's a hand latest excuse because they've known the asbestos was there all the time it's been there. They've simply chosen that to do it. But it is in trouble, and I think that, that the closure will be complete. It's, it's tragic. I shot there as a cadet in school in the, during the war, actually, uh, with you know, 22 barrels of bent 22 barrels in 303 frames, and, and we shot on those ranges there. And I was a member of the RAE club uh, shooting uh, military rifle there until such time as they took away the, the semi-autos and I moved to Port Macquarie anyway. And we enjoyed it. It was a great complex, but I think it's days are over. Yeah. All right. We're getting to our last uh, two or three questions, uh, John. Say, so, as a hunter and shooter, you know, what, what takes your fancy? Are you more of a rifle or pistol or shotgun guy? And what sort of, you know, in your hunting days, what's your favourite sort of uh, game species to hunt? Well, what I mainly hunted was pigs. I was always a very keen wild pig hunter, and that's basically all. I mean, I started off with a kid shooting rabbits, obviously, down in Daniloquin, with the first rifle I ever bought, which is an English BSA 22-5 shot, and I've still got an incident. And um, then I graduated to other things, and I've, I've enjoyed target shooting. Pistol shooting I did for many years, as I said, but I had to give that up when I broke my shoulder, and it hasn't really come good so I can take the recoil. But um, I'm a rifle shooter, basically, I suppose, and I'm not that great with a shotgun, although I did have a Remington 870 with a four-round um, extension magazine. Very, very handy with SGs or AAAs against pigs. Oh, yes. But the rifle that I treasure the most is a Mark IV 303 that I bought for $50 at a clearing sale. It looked like nothing on earth. It, the woodwork was grey like a paling fence. The inside of the barrel looked like the surface of the moon. It was a big, heavy sniper barrel. And I took it to my friend Roly Musket, who cut the barrel to about 16 and a half inches and uh, had the woodwork cut back and uh, rosewood polished and took up the headspace on the face of the bolt. And that is simply the most accurate rifle I've ever owned. I don't even have a scope on it. But up to about 150 yards, it's spot on. It's got a 10-round magazine. I used to wander around my property in a boiler suit with pockets full of 10-round magazines fully loaded because we had pigs there by the thousand. And that rifle has dispatched a great many of them, let me tell you. Oh, sounds like those are the days are gone, eh? Going to a little sale and picking up a nice little second-hand rifle or something. That's right. Uh, all right, to finish off, John, before we wrap up, just tell us a story. So whether it be, 
you know, maybe a, one of your professional accomplishments or even a hunting story, something that sticks in your mind as one of the best days in John Tingle's life. Well, I know one of the best days, but one of the most memorable days when I was up on that property and uh, a man from Sydney, a very well-known television star, came up with his son. They were just taking up shooting. They said, can we come and shoot some pigs on your place? I said, sure. So they arrived with a huge wooden box with rope handles full of ammunition and two crag rifles, uh, crag rifles that they'd bought somewhere, great long barrels, quite, quite unsuitable for scrub work. When I opened the uh, boxes, I discovered there were about 10,000 rounds of 8mm military ammunition in it. I thought, oh, what are we going to do with this? I mean, military ammunition is useless for hunting, as you would know. But anyway, I took them out, and they shot a few things, mainly missed. And then one day, I went to my neighbor's property, and my neighbor's now dead, so I can tell the story. But we had two tanks side by side, great big ground tanks, about the size of 10 Olympic pools each. And right on the far bank of the far tank was an old sow with a whole stack of piglets all hovering around, and these two guys decided that they were going to have it. So at a huge range, they opened fire. They emptied magazine after magazine, <laughs> nothing hit anything. And then finally, almost by accident, one of them must have nicked the old sow on the back hock because, you know, the pigs got very poor eyesight. But she looked up, sniffed, and came trotting along the bank of the tank towards us. And they said, what's she doing? I said, she's coming around to have you on because you've hurt her and you've damaged the pig, piglets. And not that they actually had, they hadn't hit anything. This thing just kept coming, and my mate was down there with his big dog holding it down below the bank of the tank. He said, what's going on? I said, the pig's coming around for breakfast. Anyway, these guys were trying to reload. They're trying to reload their rifles. And finally, this pig was literally about 10 feet away and coming at a trot. And over my shoulder, just resting, I had my rifle, which is a Marlin triple four. So I gave up letting, you know, we always let the guests do the shooting. I just dropped the rifle and went bang. And she actually fell dead and fell on this fellow's feet. Oh, he said, that was close, wasn't it? I said, yes. He said, what would have happened if you, if you hadn't shot? I said, you would have had you for breakfast. And he fainted. <laughs> City shooters, mate, they're nice people with a lovely man, this fellow, but he'd never been shooting before. I don't think he's ever been shooting again. Oh, it's, oh well, I mean... He was a big boar, a very big boar, about 250 pounds. I think, how long did it take him to come to after that? Oh, well, he came out and said, what the hell happened? <laughs> he still had one foot under the boar, and he sort of yelped and pulled his leg out from under it and stood back and looked at it and said, <laughs> God, she's big, isn't she? I said, yep, and big enough. Mind you, the triple four doesn't brook much argument. You hit something with that and it tends to end the argument. Oh, no. Marvellous round at close range. Oh, it looks like you've had some good experiences. I hope one day when I you know, get to sort of, you know, a bit older, I've got some of the experiences you've had. So it sounds like you've had a very fruitful life, John, that's for sure. It's been a great life, Jason. I can't complain about it one bit. I've had 70 years of, of good living well since I started shooting, 80 years of a good life, and I don't regret one minute of it. I don't know how much longer it's going to go on, but as long as it does, I'll continue to enjoy it. All right, well, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Um, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, like a lot of people just want to say, again, I'll say it again, thanks. There's a lot of shooters that did sentiment emails to me on a few forums that I frequent as well, saying, mm. you know, thanks for all the effort you've put in, you know. Well, mate, it was, I was putting it in in my own interest as well, let's face it. Yeah, I, absolutely, but it's obviously helped us out. I mean, yeah. obviously around, I said, the 96 era, things became very tough, you know, shooters and, you know, even fishermen, I mean, even anything in the outdoors is under the pump these days from That's the, right. you know, greenies and these anti-gun people and, you know, thinking we're going to become out like America, yet other civilised countries don't have, you know, the problems, yeah. yet still have the array of firearms that were still available, mm. you know, pre-1996. So thanks for coming on the show. Jason, um, we can never give up because they never will.
No, exactly. Never give up. Keep fighting the good fight. I tell everyone, and everyone needs to stick together. That's the thing that's especially come to my, um, you know, like emails over the last couple of, especially over the last year or so since I've been doing this podcast. And people need to stick together and not be complacent. Don't be lazy. Get out there and tell everyone you're a shooter and, and, and you know, push the sport forward into a good light, not into a bad light. So, you're right. Thanks for coming on, John. I really appreciate it. I will let you go. You have a, I do hope to speak to you sometime very soon, and I hope one day or very soon sometime I can meet you in person and you know have a good chat and uh, you know say hello thanks for having me Jason it's been a pleasure you've just been educated and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast thanks for listening see you next time